Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review Podcast. My name is Eddie Plout, the podcast director and producer, and today with Dr. Martin Wiener, the Mary Gibbs Jones Professor of History. Dr. Wiener is teaching History 203 next semester, an incredibly unique course called Deep History, Who We Are and How We Got Here. For this episode, I'll be talking with Dr. Wiener about some of the many interesting topics in his course, as well as general introduction to the concept of deep history. Dr. Wiener, how are you doing today? Oh, just fine. Happy to be here. So I did a little preliminary research on your recommendation surrounding deep history. And one of the interesting quotes I found in one of the books I was reading about it was this idea that humans have always been interested in their origins, but the deep past, as typically understood by modern historians, is never deeper than antiquity and is sometimes positioned in an even more recent era. That's from Andrew Shryock's and David Lord Smale's book on deep mm-hmm. history. Could you give us our listeners a brief explanation of what deep history is and why is it difficult to show study how we traditionally write about history? Well, uh, deep history is really the seven million years that humans have developed on this planet. Humans or human-like creatures have lived compared to the mere four or five thousand years since the invention of writing, which is so such a small part of human existence. Deep history, in other words, deals with the 99% of the time that humans or human-like creatures have been on Earth as opposed to what the 1% we historians have traditionally focused on. And we've done that, of course, not perversely, but because before writing, there was very little uh, apart from occasional physical re- remnants uh, to, for us to figure out what was going on. And it's only really in the last 20 years that we have had, thanks to a kind of scientific revolution, uh, the ability to really say things that more or less relatively can can be confident uh, have some accuracy about the real past, the real human past. So uh, sort of as a follow-up to to that, Shryock and Smell discussed this notion of time straitjacket, which I thought was a very cool concept, as one in which classical study of history is typically constrained to this idea of written history. Now, when you're studying deep history, could you talk a little bit about the different methods and means of categorizing and studying deep history in if we're not considering, like, written records? Sure. Uh, methods have exploded uh, a variety of possible methods. Most important, of course, has been uh, the ability to read human DNA and from and read it from old ancient uh, remnants like fossils. And this has happened, as I say, just in the last 20 years and even less, really, the last perhaps 10 years. And not only uh, D, uh, DNA, that's been crucial, but there are a variety of other methods uh, scientists have been developing of different sorts. For example, of just one out of out of many, we can now tap bubbles in Arctic glaciers to discover just what environments of many, many thousands of years or even millions of years ago uh, were like. As well, so to complement uh, the DNA telling us what you might say, the uh, insides of humans, the internal environments of humans uh, were like. There's been just an explosion of methods, as I say, centering around the most important one of all, which has been a DNA uh, reading uh, that enabled us to, just in the last few years, learn so much more about the the real past. 
So why should historians be involved in something that sounds so scientific? It sounds like the study of human genome, the study yeah. of like the the gas conditions of a previous Earth. Yeah. Those seem very like science, truly empirical scientific questions. Where where can historians come in? Well, historians. Uh, first of all, historians, of course, are the the experts, the specialists in the past. That's what they're focused on, and they have, historians have always made use of information made available by a variety of sciences, uh, physical sciences as, and social sciences. So that's nothing new. And also, uh, it's not just that historians uh, do this, but historians can give to all of these separate specialists who are developing various methods that can be applied to the past some sense of context. Historians can synthesize, can draw from a variety of different expertises, whether they're anthropology or genetics or many others, physical chemistry, and put them together in some kind of a coherent context that's meaningful for human beings and for the understanding of, of their history. One point from my brief research on deep history and in my conversation with you yeah. in, in talking about the concepts in this class was uh, for your class in this topic is the very complicated relationship between progress as a concept which sort of underpins classical historical writing where from one generation to the next, things get better, man improves mm -hmm. generally. In deep history, the, this relationship is not as straightforward. Well, no, because most for most of their history, it's not so clear if we're only looking at the last couple thousand years, but for most of human history, and even today, uh, more than sometimes we'd like to acknowledge, humans have been the subject of forces largely beyond their control, weather and climate, disease, uh, even uh, struggles with other, other species, even struggles with other humans. And, and all of these forces are uh, the kind of things that, that we can't not being able to control, we, things don't necessarily move in the direction that we might like. So that uh, much of human life is really, has always been, uh, more, has had more of the element of simple struggle for survival and to manage these forces uh, than simply setting out step-by-step -step progress. And so a lot of a lot of chance does go into this, then that it's like you get unlucky, snowstorm wipes you out or something. Yes. That oh, chance <laughs> has played the further back in time. Of course, the more you see how much uh, chance has always played a key role in human history. Just following the point I was just making about these these forces beyond human control, one example among many, uh, the Black Death killed almost half the population of medieval Europe. With a little more virulence, that the Black Death could have killed still more and enough more so that uh, Europe, medieval Europe, never really would have recovered and think how history would have been different uh, with a devastated Western Europe uh, over the last uh, half millennium. And on the other hand, contrarywise, uh, if Genghis Khan uh, had not led his Mongols in their great sweep westward, uh, there probably would have been no Black Death because it's now believed that its pathogen emerged as a mutation in Central Asia and was probably carried by oh. the Mongols. Uh, so that in, without any Black Death, history again would have been quite different. 
And I can imagine, too, there's a certain amount of kind of implicit chance where it's like the butterfly effect of Genghis Khan doesn't move the Mongol horde across Central yes. Asia. And tons of little things can change yes. that affect the course of history. Another point that you and I discussed in our brief conversation on Deep History, which I thought was was also very interesting, related specifically to agriculture, was this idea of the costs of progress, that even when ostensibly progress is made, it's not always for the better. Could you talk a little bit about this? Sure. Uh, One of the great examples of the difficulties uh, in in making progress was the invention of agriculture, which traditionally was always seen as one of the greatest uh, steps towards uh, modern civilization and human progress. But we've come to see, partly through these uh, revolutions in uh, the sources of our knowledge, we've come to see just how many negatives, how many costs were involved in the transition from foraging to to farming. Uh, early farmers, we now can see, worked much longer hours in much less satisfying work, ate worse diets, were susceptible to a variety of new diseases because of, of their farming activities, and even were came to live in ever less equal societies. All of these problems came along with farming, and yet without farming, so many uh, expansive opportunities for human beings for ourselves today would hardly exist. But they were, in a sense, paid for by the early farmers and their early descendants who lived Worse lives, really, uh, less happy, uh, shorter, less healthy lives than their uh, foraging hunter-gatherer ancestors. So it was progress sort of in the long-term sense. In the, in the immediate short term, it was, <laughs> yes, does it, not sound like progress at it's, all. <laughs> it, the invention of agriculture, instead of one of the, the, the great triumphs of human the human mind has has come more to be seen by students of of, the, of deep history as a gr- a tragic development, <laughs> uh, a tragedy in in the classical sense of of something not just bad, but something that in which good and bad are in, inextricably entwined. Mm. Sort of along these same lines of of progress not always being this sort of straightforward straight line progression for human kind, uh, one, another conversation that you and I had, which I thought was probably the, one mm-hmm. of the most interesting that we had, was about Neanderthals. Because Neanderthals, there's a time frame where they actually, their time on Earth links up with that of Homo sapiens. Uh, how has our understanding of Neanderthals with the study of deep history changed over time? And how like us were they, considering that our time actually overlapped? What Neanderthals... Uh... We understand vastly more about them now, largely because of the DNA revolution. And once we have re- able to read their DNA, ancient Neanderthal DNA, we've discovered that they were much more like us than we had thought. Uh, our opinions, you might say, our view of Neanderthals have shifted from the uh, stooped over hulking semi-brutes, or maybe mostly brutes, to uh, creatures not very different from us. Indeed, uh, it's not really well known, but uh, their brains were slightly larger than ours were. So, in fact, they're the only only, uh, primates that have uh, slightly larger brains than humans, something that we've always, of course, prided ourselves on. So that it's quite possible 
that if the circumstances had been somewhat different, if, say, uh, the ice ages, the timing of the uh, cycles of uh, retreats and advances of, of glaciers that were going on at the time that humans, our ancestors, Homo sapiens and Neanderthals, met in Europe, if the cycles had been somewhat different, the timing had been somewhat different, Neanderthals might not have disappeared. And indeed, uh, our ancestors might have disappeared. And Neanderthals might have inherited the earth. Again, chance, saving Homo chance, sapiens. Chance, tremendous, uh, <laughs> playing a, a, a decisive role, just like uh, the Greek philosophers uh, said, that chance rules the, the world. And we don't like to think of that now. And perhaps we've reduced slightly the uh, powers and and scope of chance in the modern world with all our uh, sciences and technology. Yet there's still a great deal of truth in it. So much of humankind's history of progress is so recent in terms of wealth and technology and knowledge and in terms of just epistemological study of our history. How do you think we're still developing evolutionarily and how does deep history kind of inform how we're still developing. Are we fully cooked yet? And one, one point that you make in your syllabus for History 203 is that how might our knowledge of the past actually help us speculate about where we're going as humans? Yeah, yeah one of the, the old cliches that turn out to be false is that evolution is over and now culture and civilization have ended the reign of, of mere evolution and replaced that by conscious progress. Uh, But that's not really true. We've come to see that, in fact, if anything, civilization, however we want to put it, has actually uh, speeded up progress, evolution, partly simply by vastly increasing the number of people on Earth. And uh, evolution works, as as most of us uh, are aware of these these basics, through random mutations – uh, some of which being uh, some of which being selected as more advantageous for reproduction than others, and of course the more humans you have, the more mutations you have. So actually, we uh, the number of mutations has exploded in modern society. Uh, there have never been so many mutations upon which natural selection can operate as today. And give specific examples: uh, the ability to digest milk by adults is a very recent phenomenon. It evolved only about 5,000 years ago uh, among herders in Eastern Europe, in uh, areas uh, that are now Russia, groups that then moved uh, through Europe. And in fact, a large part of the human race today still has problems uh, outside uh, people who are not descended from Europeans. Many of them uh, still have problems digesting milk, Uh, because this mutation has yet, although it's been spreading, because it's turned out to be very advantageous, milk's very healthy for you, uh, hasn't yet spread to the entire human race. And that's something, a a very recent example of evolution. Or another one, blue eyes only emerged a few thousand years ago in northern Europe. Uh, There were no humans uh, with blue eyes before a few thousand years ago. And of course, it's still fairly, it spread. It turned out to serve some function, which we don't fully understand, but it clearly must have been somewhat advantageous. It spread over the last few thousand years, but it's been too recent to spread very far. So we still, when we see blue-eyed people, we think they very likely had ancestors uh, who had lived in Northern Europe. 
Scandinavian something. Scandinavians, Nordic. right? Scandinavians are classically famous for having blue eyes. Mm. And again, blonde hair is fairly recent evolutionary development. Hmm. Well, that's really interesting. So just to finish up, what are some good starting points you might have for any historians interested in reading about and learning about deep history, besides your class, of sure. course? <laughs> oh, well, I would recommend uh, there's one book in particular that's not very long, but I think uh, everybody should read. And in fact, I stole its title for the subtitle of, of History 2003, and that's uh, Who We Are and How We Got Here uh, by David Reich. Uh, Reich is a research professor at Harvard Medical School, and he is one of the two leaders in the field of historical genetics. And the book explains uh, very clearly, very simply, not with a lot of uh, more technical language than necessary, the whole development of uh, the DNA revolution and how it has transformed our understanding of the, the deep human past. So uh, Reich's book is fascinating. I would recommend it to everybody. I'll put a link to that into the description of this video. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Weiner. That's going to be it for us today. Thank you for listening to the Rice Historical Review podcast. My name is Eddie Plout. For if you want to check out more of the Rice Historical Review, visit ricehistoricalreview.org. Visit our SoundCloud or iTunes for additional episodes of the podcast. And tune in next week where we will likely finish up our honors thesis candidate podcasts. Thank you.